Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 111. I'm your host, Natalie Gruninger, and it's so wonderful to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a book pack consisting of book one and two of Wendy J. Dunn's Falling Pomegranate Seed series, The Duty of Daughters, and All Manner of Things. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm so excited that joining me on the show to talk about Anne Boleyn's books, Vowers, is Kate McCaffrey. Kate recently completed her master's degree with a distinction in medieval and early modern studies at the University of Kent, where her research for her thesis, supervised by Dr. David Rundell, unearthed some exciting new evidence about Henry VIII's ill-fated second wife, Anne Boleyn, and her books of hours. She completed her undergraduate degree in history at the University of Warwick, where she wrote her dissertation on Catherine de' Medici and spent a term living and studying abroad in Venice, Italy. Kate has always been passionate about history and particularly the history of early modern women. In between her studies, she worked for six years at Hever Castle as a steward, even dressing in costume as Anne Boleyn, and has more recently been appointed assistant curator at Hever. My conversation with Kate's coming up straight after this short musical break. I'm thrilled to be able to share with you a new song from Berlin the Musical called To Be Brave. It's sung by Jackie Burns from Broadway's Wicked. Music and lyrics are by Jesse Tomsko from the show Berlin. The arrangement by Adam Michael Kaufman and Jesse Tomsko. And strings Tomoko Akaboshi and Keiji Ishiguri. To find out more about this exciting show, head over to Berlin the Musical on Instagram. Sweet little girl, I loved her 
it's such a hard thing It pulls you apart and leaves you when it's through
welcome to Talking Tudors. Kate, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's very exciting. I know I'm I'm really excited to talk to you today, actually. But before we dive into the subject matter, let's um, just introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about your background. Yes, of course. So I've just recently completed my master's degree at the University of Kent with uh, the Department of Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Um, and it was here that I completed my thesis on some exciting discoveries I made recently about um, one of Anne Boleyn's books of hours, which is held at Hever Castle, uh, which we'll be discussing today. And before that, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Warwick, um, where I studied history and I studied abroad for a term in Venice, which was great. And in between my studies, I've worked at Hever Castle on and off for about seven years. So it does feel very full circle for me to be able to to have worked there for so long and then to be able to come back in a scholarly capacity and, and study the books and make these discoveries. So it's thanks to my connection to Hever that I was able to to work with them in the first place um, because they are they're very protective over the books as they should be. So I was very lucky to even get to hold them and work with them. Absolutely. How wonderful. Now, you've mentioned, obviously, Anne Boleyn's printed book of hours, which is housed at the very beautiful Hever Castle, and that that was the focus of your master's thesis research. And that's what we're going to be discussing today, some of those exciting discoveries that you made. But we'll just keep everyone waiting for a moment, because before that, I just want you perhaps just to tell us a little bit about books of hours and what they actually were, and when did they become popular in England? Yes, of course. So I'd say books of ours are probably most succinctly described as um, scriptural prayer books, um, which is the words of Eamon Duffy. Um, but they were traditionally Catholic texts. Um, so they sort of faded out of production in England during Elizabeth's reign. Their contents were mainly written in Latin. There were prayers that were drawn largely from the Psalter. Uh, they were highly customizable texts, um, which is sort of the beauty of them, but there were kind of usual contents, which would usually include at the start of the book, there'd be a calendar of sort of church feasts. The core of the text was usually known as the Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, which was obviously a devotion to the Virgin Mary. Another important part um, would be known as the Office of the Dead, which was a sort of more somber prayer cycle. And there were sort of various other basic contents, including penitential psalms, gradual psalms, and a litany of saints etc. But yeah, the beauty of A Book of Hours, I think, is that it was often produced for a specific client or a group of clients, depending on if it was manuscript or printed. And so you could request certain prayers to be added. And obviously, before the advent of print, they were all manuscripts. And, and this in itself was highly customizable and, and could be in the form of heraldic devices, personal mottos, coats of arms, even personal portraits, sometimes within the book itself. And uh, there's a great example which has all of those in and that's the Bedford Hours which is currently at the British Library but you can view it online and it's um there's one particular folio which I love which has it was obviously made um, for the Duke of Lancaster the Duke of Bedford sorry John of Lancaster and his wife Anne of Burgundy and it has both of their heraldic devices on one specific folio but then a century later painted alongside these have been the heraldic devices of Henri II and Catherine de Medici of France who were later owners so it's sort of a good example of how a book of ours could be kind of customized generation on generation. Um, so yes, and obviously then when the printing press became in use in England in sort of the, the late uh, 15th century, it was um, able to become a lot more accessible books of ours. And I think this is when they really became sort of almost the first popular text. It was sort of a fashion to own one. Um, and obviously it, there were cheaper printings. People still had manuscripts and had one of both at Hever. One's a manuscript, one's a printed book. 
but yes, and I think aside from the glorious illuminations, there's also personalization in um, the kind of trend of written intervention, which came with Books of Hours, which is just wonderful to see. And I think it's one of my favorite aspects of, of Books of Hours. And, and it's it means that they sort of almost became personal diaries. There's one in, in the British Library as well, the, the Beaufort Hours, which is obviously Margaret Beaufort's book. It was made for her mother. But she's written inside it all sorts of wonderful dates of birth of her, her son and her grandchildren, but also some medical recipes. There's one from migraine, which is um, involves pouring breast milk into your ear. So there's all sorts of great kind of intimate insights that these books can give us today because of the written intervention as well. That's wonderful. Thank you. Now, I, I want to talk more about the books of ours that are at Hever Castle. And, you know, not many of Anne's belongings survive. So it's it's so wonderful that they actually have two books that we can connect with her. Um, mm-hmm. Could you describe these two? You've already mentioned one's a manuscript and one's a printed book, but could you give us a little bit more detail as to what they look like, their contents and that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, like you said, I think it's hugely significant that Heber have two of her books of ours because only a handful still exist today and actually only three contain her signed inscriptions and two of those are at Heber. So I think it's, it's great and amazing that they're, they're both there um, with her signed inscriptions because it is so rare. Yeah, so the manuscript is the elder of the two. Um, it's probably the more famous of the two as well. It's certainly the most um, gloriously illuminated, the most obviously beautiful of the two. Um, and it's actually the oldest illuminated manuscript associated with Anne today. Uh, it was made in Bruges with use of serum, which is means it was produced with the Latin liturgical rites used in England, uh, so made for an English audience. It was made obviously on parchment. It was made in the mid 15th century for an unknown English owner. And its current binding is very opulent. The bank binding at the moment is, is from probably 19th, 20th century. So it's not original, but it's sort of red and gold mosaic and geometric designs. It's very, very beautiful. The insides is, uh, is written in a Gothic um, book hand script. It's black ink. It's in Latin. There's sort of rubrics in dark pink. There's embellished initials. There's very ornate illustrations. There's 23 small miniatures, 23 full page miniatures, and then eight large arch topped miniatures. And they're all bordered in gold and pink and blue. And uh, there's also full page border panels, which sort of have hand drawn decorations of leaves and fruit and animals. And it's, it's very vibrant to look at still. So it's a really beautiful piece. And um, the provenance of it is interesting as well, because it has, it contains not just Anne's famous Le Tonfiandre inscription, which will see the time will come, um, but it has eight other inscriptions within it as well. So five of those are, are signed and are signed by various members of, of the English nobility at the time. There's some recognisable names, or surnames at least. There's an Elizabeth Seymour who we suspect will either be the sister or the niece of Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife. And then there's an Elizabeth Northampton, who was known as Elizabeth Parr. So she was the, the uh, wife of Catherine Parr's brother, William. So this, this manuscript is actually associated with three of Henry's wives, which is quite exciting. And it, it seems very much to have stayed within sort of local hands in Kent, within the Cobham or Brooke family, they were known as both. Um, who were sort of second cousins of Anne, Lord uh, Baron Cobham, George Brooke, he sat as a peer at Anne's trial and his wife was the attendant horsewoman at Anne's coronation. So they were obviously in close circles. And yes, yeah, so, so it's, it seems to have circled through quite a high sector of the English nobility, this book. Wonderful. And and so so Heaver's printed hours, this is the exciting, the really, really exciting part, was previously thought to contain only one inscription, of course, and that's Anne's famous 
rhyming couplet that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will recognize. Remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. However, during your research with the use of ultraviolet light and some photo editing software, you discovered something very exciting. So would you like to tell us about what you found? Yes, of course. I'm sorry, I realized I didn't even describe the printed book. I just talked about it. (laughs) So I'll quickly do a description of the printed one because it's an interesting contrast because it's obviously a lot more humble looking than than its manuscript counterpart. It's a lot more unassuming. It's smaller physically. It's bound in kind of a plain brown leather, which is closer to the original date. It's around 16th, 17th century. It has been printed, obviously, which kind of lowers it in the the hierarchy of books of ours at the time. However, it was printed on parchment. So that does elevate it considerably from the sort of cheaper printings that would have been on paper. And yes, there's sort of this woodworm damage on the spine, there's sort of water damage and frequent blemishes. It's definitely, definitely unassuming compared to, to the manuscript. But I think that's why it's sort of become maybe one of my favorite my probably my favorite now because um i think it embodies the don't judge a book by its cover saying and yes it, it's got woodcuts as well so it does have illuminations inside which have been hand painted and it was actually printed in paris uh, with use of serum for, so again for an english audience um it was made in 1527 which we can take from the date of the calendar being for the year 1528 and it was printed by the very prolific uh, French printer, Germain Hodouin. Um, him and his brother Gilles had run a very successful printing business um, since the start of the 16th century, specializing in books of ours. And uh, the special thing about Hodouin is that he was also registered with the Guild of Illuminators. So he seems to have run a workshop whereby he not only printed the book, but also hand illuminated them as well. So they, they were a sort of uh, a higher higher echelon of um, printed books of ours. So this is a still special one. But yes, so as I said, nothing's really been known about the provenance of this book other than Anne's uh, single note inside before. And so I was obviously very lucky to be able to get my hands on this book uh, in January of last year, just before the pandemic hit. So I was very lucky. And as I was leafing through the the pages of the smaller book, I, I was just sort of trying to soak it all in. And I noticed at the bottom of one, page in the blank margin seemed to become kind of some kind of smudging and I thought it could potentially be just the water damage that's on some other pages but as I looked closer it seemed to there seemed to always be very very faint very legible words beneath it and so I asked Heva's wonderful curator Alison Palmer I asked if she was aware of this and she was as surprised as I was to see it and so I continued looking through and I found three other pages with this kind of similar marking, which seemed to, to suggest that there had been a note there that had been erased. And so I was able to come back to the books, thankfully, a good few times, first with a cheap little ultraviolet light that I ordered online, and then second with a sort of proper industrial strength UV light that I'd been able to borrow from Canterbury Cathedral. And it was under that light that the words kind of emerged from the pages. And um, yes, so after months of sort of trying to um, decipher what they say, I used Photoshop as well to try and kind of clear the fog around the words. Um, It was a very long, very frustrating process. Um, But but now um, I've managed to get partial transcriptions. I think, unfortunately, some words have been so fully scrubbed out that I don't know if we'll ever get them back. But I've got enough to know at least the names of the people who wrote the books. And so that's obviously made sure that I'm able to piece together the provenance of the book and the movement of the book after Anne's use and there's kind of some exciting and and powerful and fresh and unique stories I think that can emerge from its um, trail after Anne's death. 
And so how do you must have, that must have just been so exciting. I can't even imagine how, how you must have felt when you realized that there were other, <laughs> other inscriptions in there. No, absolutely. I think I was thinking I was just initially in shock um, that nobody had studied this before. Nobody was aware that this was here before. I think the the fact that it seemed new to Ali and I when we were looking at the books was just seemed crazy. Um, I think it, it was, and it still feels very surreal. But I think honestly, it's it's just been such a privilege, and I think it's felt very personal to me and and my experiences as well, having worked at Hever for so long and. I've stood next to these books in glass cases for sort of seven years on and off. And I even dressed in costume as Anne Boleyn for part of my work at Hever and, and walked literally in her footsteps. And so then to be able to hold her books and leaf through them and kind of hopefully recover and restore this part of the book's history and the voices um, who, who were close to Anne, who had personal connections to Anne, who owned this book after her, it, it feels... I think it's probably the closest you can feel to a historical figure and I'm very proud I think to be able to to hopefully restore their place in the book's history and in the history of Anne's life and the lives of the people she was close to and trusted. Absolutely wonderful I'm getting goosebumps just listening to you I think when I was at Hever last time I I was just wanting to get my head inside the case I I couldn't quite get close enough. Um, So did those inscriptions and that new evidence reveal about the book's 16th century ownership? Well I think the sort of summary would be evidence reveals that Anne's book continued in its 16th century life after her ownership within the predominantly female hands of a a sort of provincial gentry family in Kent who protected the memory of the book's original owner of Anne by ensuring the survival of her signed inscription within the pages. And my research has has shown that this hour's entered into the circles of those who did have personal connections to Anne and so chose to keep her memory alive through the protection of her inscription, which is a particularly brave thing to have done at the time because obviously in the wake of her downfall it would have been dangerous to own anything that was associated uh, with Anne let alone contained her signed inscription because as we know Henry VIII after her um, downfall sort of attempted pretty much a systematic erasure of Anne from history as he moved on to his third wife Jane Seymour and so we don't know much about Anne's immediate afterlife and memory in the 16th century and so this is very exciting to hopefully be able to give a a fresh insight into that and I think there's all sorts of stories that that come through but I think the overarching themes are are coming through is, is a community that formed a female community of solidarity and of bravery around protecting Anne's part in the book and holding her close and and I think also what's particularly significant is that those who owned the book after Anne seem to have been very much law-abiding Kent families. They they seem to have, you know, it's also in the same book, you can see that they erased the feasts of Thomas Becket and of names of popes, which became law in 1537. So they were certainly conforming to, to some laws, but then this kind of great subversive paradox, they were also keeping Anne's note safe inside. Um, and I think that's particularly special. And then alongside that community that developed sort of as a result of protecting Anne's note, I feel like another community kind of formed from that, which is one of, of this encouraging safe space for sort of rare female expression. Um, and the presence of Anne's notes seems to have encouraged these women who owned it after her to also add their own notes and then pass it on to, to someone else they trusted who added another note. And I feel like it kind of builds the book into something that's become a real communal symbol for gendered identity, which is really wonderful. 
Yeah, that is so amazing. I'm currently immersed in writing about Anne's downfall at the moment, actually, for a project I'm working on. And I must say, it's so lovely to hear actual concrete evidence that her memory survived after those brutal, brutal weeks. And and it's just really wonderful, actually. It makes me a bit teary, to be honest. It's very beautiful. Um, so Kate I suppose everyone at home is dying to hear more about these families the, the names to see if they can recognize anyone so what do we know of those individuals and the families that kept Anne's hours safe after her execution sure so I mean it's exciting to be able to finally say the names of the the families who owned Anne's hours and kept it safe because obviously they played a huge part in the book's history and the book's survival and and they've never before been realized so so the main family names are those of Gage West and Shirley and then these three family names center around a fourth family which is the Guildford family and you may or may not recognize some of these names they were sort of mainly all provincial nobles close to Kent some were more well known than others but as the authors of the inscriptions were largely female it seems that about three of the four inscriptions were signed by women four or five if we're including Anne uh, their surnames vary a lot because obviously they married and took on different names. Um, so that was uh, a hard, hard part of the research and a piece them all together. Um, but they are all connected by this Guildford family. So I'll try and explain the kind of family tree. I hope it doesn't get too, too confusing. It's easier when I've got a diagram, um, but I'll do my best to keep it simple. But the Guildfords were a, a prominent Kent noble family. They held about three or 4,000 acres in Kent. The Guildford we're interested in particularly is Sir Richard Guildford and his children. Uh, Richard Guildford was, was born in 1450 to sort of 1506, and he was from Cranbrook in Kent. Two of his sons, Edward Guildford and Henry Guildford, were successful courtiers and actually close friends of Henry VIII. Um, and the Guildfords we're concerned about were by Sir Richard's first wife, Anne Pimp, but he did later marry Joan Vaux, who was the lady governess of Princesses Margaret and Mary Tudor. So they were a family who were sort of known and respected at court, um, but they did keep their life fairly provincial. And it's Richard Guildford's daughters who we are most interested in and um, sort of re representative of their high status. They all made important marriages, creating alliances with um, other noble families in or around Kent. So you get this kind of very complex interconnected network. And the actual authors of the inscriptions are, as far as I've been able to uncover, John Gage, who is the sole male author, Elizabeth Shirley, Mary West, and then the final one is the hardest to decipher, but likely that it says Philippa Gage. And so Philippa Gage and Elizabeth Shirley were both sisters. Their maiden names were both Guildford. So they were the daughters of Sir Richard Guildford. And John Gage was Philippa's husband. He was, Sir John Gage was a prominent Tudor politician. He had a successful court-based career across Henry's reign and into the reign of Mary I. Elizabeth Shirley, near Guildford, she married twice. She married first Thomas Isley of Sandridge in Kent and second Richard Shirley of Whiston, Sussex. And then Mary West, there were an awful lot of Mary Wests at the time. So this one took a particularly long time to find, um, but she seems to be likely the niece or the great niece, they both have the same name, of Elizabeth Shirley and Philippa Gage. Um, she was the daughter or granddaughter of their brother, George Guildford. And she then married Owen West, um, who was the son of Thomas West, the Baron de la War. So not only were the women of these families sort of um, all sisters, nieces, it kind of seems to have been this female connection, um, but their husbands were also 
we're all close friends. So in Richard Shirley's will of 1540, his actual his executors of his will were John Gage and Thomas West, the Baron de la War. Um, so you kind of have this very interconnected local circle um, that was kind of focusing, it can be seen to focus around Anne's book. So it's great to almost view this book and its provenance as a way to kind of see um, the interconnected um, Kent gentry circles that, that, um, that were around at the time. And yes, I mean, it was, it took me a long time to kind of piece them all together, but I hope that's kind of makes sense as the main um, people involved. Absolutely. And I, I find it so wonderful because I think we've often heard about Anne's uh, Norfolk connections, but rarely I think we, we've heard about the Kent connections. And of course, they spent quite a bit of time at Hever, so it makes sense that they were moving in those circles as well as moving in the court circles. Yeah, it's just wonderful. It's like, it feels like a real missing piece of the, the puzzle. How do you think that this book, I suppose this is the, the kind of million billion dollar question, how did Anne's book get to these families, do you think? Well, I think this is probably the most frustrating part of my research, um, sort of other than looking for hours and hours at the UV images trying to decipher early modern erased writing. Um, but I, I realised the connections between the Wests, the Shirleys, the Gages a long time before I realised their connection to Anne. So that was sort of a big missing link in my story for quite a while. But if it was one of the most frustrating processes, it was certainly the most um, exciting moment when I sort of found what I believe to be the connection connection which comes from a name that you you knew and recognized from your book research um, which is Elizabeth and Richard Hill um, so it's another name to throw into the family trees in the fusion but Elizabeth Hill was actually born Elizabeth Isley so she was the daughter of Thomas Isley of Sundridge and his first wife Elizabeth Guildford later Elizabeth Shirley so again it's a female connection that ties the path of this book together and um, yes, yeah, so Elizabeth Hill, the daughter of Elizabeth Shirley, who obviously wrote in the book, um, and the same Elizabeth Hill was married to Richard Hill, who was the sergeant of the King's Cellar from around 1527. They, they must have got married sometime before 1530, because that's when their first son was born, but I'm, I'm not sure, I have not got a date for that. But she was, so she was a lady at court at the time that Anne would have been at court, and when Anne was queen. I first found her as Mrs. Hills in the 1534 New Year's gift role and being born and raised obviously only seven or eight miles from Anne's childhood home at Hever and her in Sundridge, it seemed logical that she could perhaps be a connection. Um, but we also have evidence which we spoke about too to suggest that the Hills were, were close to Anne and, and even supported her cause at court and there's a wonderful anecdote in 1532 from um, Henry VIII's Privy Purse expenses which show us that Richard Hill beat Anne at Bowls and won a substantial amount of money from her. Um, so I think that's a really, really interesting um, moment and adds to this kind of picture that, that they have a very plausible connection between Anne and all of these other families. So it seems sort of most likely to me that the book was passed by Anne, either sometime before her execution or perhaps at her bequest after her death, it's hard to tell, um, to her friend or acquaintance, Elizabeth Hill, who she grew up very close to as a child and whose families were probably close. But if nothing else, they shared this common experience of, of locality and background. And I feel like in a time when Anne was at court at this, this time, I mean, who do you trust? She would have no, so, so many allies were probably working behind her. And it's just, um, so I feel like having maybe some kind of common experience was a bonding factor. But Elizabeth Hill then seems to have passed the book to her mother, Elizabeth Shirley, who passed it to her sister and brother-in-law, Philippa and John Gage, and then on to 
their niece, Mary West. And obviously the book will have had other owners as well in the 16th century, but it's it's a lot harder to tell who, because obviously they don't haven't written their names helpfully in the book. But it does seem to very much have remained in the hands of those who once shared a personal connection to Anne, even if only because they then later bravely cherished her memory by protecting the book and her signed note within it. Yeah, it's so exciting. I know I was so excited when I was reading uh, one of your articles and I saw the name Richard Hill. I just thought, oh my goodness, I know that man. And having, and because I just marveled that both Henry and Anne seemed to have really favoured him. And even though he was a sort of below stairs staff member, he was often invited up to play cards. And and as we just heard, you know, used to play bowls with Anne and beat her. And there was, it seems like there was quite a yeah, really lovely relationship between them, even though she was queen and he was the sergeant of the cellar. So it makes perfect sense that I think if she was looking for someone to keep that safe at a point where she really couldn't really trust most people around her, that they she might turn to someone that was, you know, that she remembered from childhood. I think, yeah, I think it's very plausible. So Kate, another thing that I found fascinating is that Anne Boleyn's was not the only copy of this printed book of ours to reach a leading Tudor woman. So who else owned a copy of this exact same printed book? Yes, this is another very exciting discovery that I made during my research and is one that there's yet more yet to find on. So, um, but it's, it's a really intriguing connection, which I think will raise a lot of questions about Anne and this other leading woman, their relationship with each other. So yes, the woman is in fact the Queen of England herself, Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, which is just a really, really incredible connection because we now know that Henry's first two wives, both Queens of England, sort of famous world-famed rivals in love and religion and sort of many other things as well, and that they shared the same copy of the same printing of the same book um, that they may very well have read together at prayer. So it's a hugely interesting and surprising connection um, between these very influential women and what's significant as well, I think, is that it comes at a hugely pivotal time in the English court. Um, sort of 1527, 1528 is when these books were likely received. And, and this is when Anne's star was very much on the rise and Catherine's on the wane. So I think it's around 1527 that Henry had decided his marriage to Catherine was over. And later that, that year, it's been speculated as, as when he first proposed to Anne. So it's a huge time of change in the structure of the Henrician court. Um, and, and the fact that these two women at this time own the same book is, is so interesting and I think has a lot of implications. Um, so yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what you think? Do you think that Anne was in some way trying to emulate her great rival or what do you think? I think there's definitely um, emulation involved. I think it's very interesting as well when you, I I was very lucky to have um, access to some images of Catherine's copy of the book, which we know was hers because she didn't write in it herself, but she um, seems to have passed it to her waiting woman, Margaret Cook or Margaret Coke, who proudly sort of wrote this book was once good Queen Catherine's. And I was able to have access to some images of it um, during the pandemic and and even comparing the books side by side, there's differences in personalization and customization, which I'm going to do more research into and, and hopefully find some more out about. But it, it's interesting to see that that yes, Anne's is is very much emulating a high status, perhaps even higher than that of the current Queen of England, which considering the circumstances is um, quite revealing, I think. There's, I'd say there's definitely an emulation, imitation almost involved of Catherine's queenly status. And there's multiple possibilities of how 
they both ended up with the same book. I mean, it could have been a sort of gift to Catherine and members of her household or a gift for Catherine and, and members of her household. But equally, it could have been that Anne and Catherine both heard that these books were being produced um, and both requested a copy and then requested subsequent customization within their copy. But yeah, the fact that they both own it and, and more than possibly used it together in sort of quiet group reading that the ladies at court would have done is, is very interesting, knowing what we know about what was going on behind the scenes. There's another touching connection. I don't know if we could take any more excitement, but we'll try. We'll try. Oh, before I move on to that, actually, Kate, sorry, it just popped into my head. So from memory, the, the book that is Catherine's book, is that in the yes. States? Was that in the... It is. Uh, yes, yeah. so it's in um, the Morgan Library in New York. Um, and so obviously was not able to fly out to New York during the pandemic to view it. Um, I hope to be able to see it in person one day, maybe. But but the curator there was very, very helpful and, and was able to send me some images to use for my research. So that was wonderful. That's wonderful. I know they have other beautiful books of ours that are digitized. So hopefully, fingers crossed, yeah. we yeah. get to see that one soon. That would be really great. Now, let's get back to this other really wonderful story as well that <laughs> came to light during your research. You must have just been so excited throughout the whole just bawling the whole time <laughs> I would have been yeah so going back to Elizabeth Hill her daughter so Elizabeth Hill's daughter married John yeah. Cheek I think it is or Czech Cheek the childhood yeah. tutor of Anne's daughter the future Elizabeth <laughs> I so do you think it's possible that Mary and John had access to Anne's hours and shared it with her daughter Queen Elizabeth yeah I mean I think what's really wonderful is is the, this link between Anne and Elizabeth Hill is is very touchingly echoed in the friendship of their respective children. So, as you said, Hill's daughter Mary married John Cheek. I think it's Cheek, um, childhood tutor of Anne's daughter Elizabeth I, and, and and Mary remained a very close and devoted friend and an important attendant of Elizabeth I until the Queen's death in 1603. Um, and so, I think a very attractive possibility, which the romantic in me would would really like to believe, and is entirely historically possible would be that more than 20 years after Anne's execution and downfall and during the reign of her daughter Elizabeth, um, Cheek was able to share this sort of small printed book with the Queen and Elizabeth could read her, her mother's signed notes within it. And I think it's just a very beautiful kind of full circle possibility um, that, that this book's connection to Anne, which once would have encouraged its destruction for being too dangerous to own, was later in the reign of her daughter, Anne's presence within the book would have actually ensured the book's survival. And I think that's almost why we have the book still today is because, um, because of that connection. And so the possibility that Elizabeth was able to see her mother's handwriting in this book is very, very, yeah, romantic and, and would be a wonderful possibility. And actually, it's echoed as well in the, the provenance of the manuscript book, Heaver's manuscript book. Um, Elizabeth Parr, who I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Northampton, she was also a very close friend of Elizabeth I. And she died around 1565, I think. But up until then, she was very close in Elizabeth I. When Catherine Parr was ill, she sent, uh, sorry, Catherine Parr, Elizabeth Parr was ill. She sent the Queen's physicians to look, try and help her. And, and she was very concerned. And, and so knowing that we know that uh, Elizabeth Parr owned the manuscript book also with Anne's signed note I think there's also a possibility perhaps that, that Elizabeth was maybe even able to see both of Heather's books with her mother's signed note obviously we'll never know for sure but it's a really nice nice idea 
And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because if they were both close to the queen, it it seems that it's the right thing to do to to show those books to her, especially when Anne's memory was obviously very important to Elizabeth. So that is so amazing. All these discoveries is just absolutely incredible. So what's next for you, Kate? Well, that's the big question. Um, I want to take this research as far as I can. I think there's there's still so much to uncover and and many more avenues to explore. Um, And I'm I'm currently working on a few things with Heather Castle, a couple of which should hopefully be live around the time that this podcast goes live. So if you check their social medias on my Twitter, then I'm sure you'll be able to see them there. And I'm also currently working on launching a blog. So that again should be live by the time of this podcast. and, And that's a place where I'll be able to share a lot more of my existing and future research with pictures and helpful diagrams to hopefully explain a bit clearer what I've tried to today. So definitely watch out for that as well. Fabulous. And what's the URL of the blog? The URL of the blog will be katemccaffrey.wordpress.com. Excellent. And I'll add a link to that in our show notes so that people can find it nice and easily into your Twitter account because now we all want to be following you and and (laughs) seeing all the pictures and and everything that's going to emerge from this, which I think is absolutely wonderful. So Kate, the last thing that I like to do on Talking Tudors is play a little game of 10 to go with guests. So 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one I'd like to ask you is what was your favorite or one of your favorite childhood toys? Oh gosh, my favorite childhood toy I still have today, and he still comes most places with me. Um, he was called Mr. Pink. Um, he's a sort of teddy bear come rabbit, I think. Um, and I was given him by my godmother when I was born. So he's as old as I am. He's looking his age. Um, he's a lot more gray now than he is pink. But yes, he's he's been with me for a long time. Oh, isn't that sweet that he still stays with you? I love that. And what about, I imagine that you do quite a lot of reading. What's one of the books that you currently have on your bedside table? Um, Currently, I'm actually rereading a book that I loved uh, by Sarah Waters. Um, I love the books that that she writes. She sort of kind of slightly period um, novels, but usually with a great twist at the end. So the one I'm rereading at the moment is The Little Stranger, which is a kind of ghostly kind of old manor house um, novel which is has a great twist so it's been very fun to be able to read after finishing my master's yeah. to read some things for fun <laughs> obviously love all the books, but it's nice to switch it up yeah actually I'm pretty sure that I have read that book and that I can't now remember exactly the twist but I think I remember yeah. being just amazed was- at the twist <laughs> At the time. Yes. I love anything that has, you know, a, a beautiful stately home, a little ghosty story to it. Yeah. You know, that's my style book exactly. Ticks the boxes. It ticks us, yeah, ticks all the boxes. What about favorite your favorite comfort food? Probably my mum's chicken noodle soup. She makes a great noodle soup, which yeah. when I come home is usually one of the first things I request. Um, it's very comforting. And anything chocolate as well. Chocolate's absolutely a comfort food for me. <laughs> So is there a show that you've recently binge watched? Yes, so the the actual most recent show that I've binge watched um, is RuPaul's Drag Race UK, the UK version, um, which I've been watching with my sister. And yes, that's just great fun. I'm a big fan of the show. What about an ideal Friday night? What do you like to do? At the moment, it's definitely being in. Um, (laughs) I'm looking forward to, to, yes, doing maybe pubs and things in the future. Um, But 
yeah, at the moment it's cozy night in probably with Netflix and cuddles with my dog and maybe a takeaway. Yeah, that sounds good. And, and your bunny, your teddy bunny as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what's a favorite app of yours at the moment? Favorite app? I'm a little bit obsessed with TikTok, actually. Maybe a bit embarrassing, but it's great fun. <laughs> um, my youngest cousin had been telling me for a long time to get on it, um, Georgia, and she I'd been resisting, but then she forced me to, and now I love it, and I'm a bit obsessed. You can spend so long just scrolling. Oh yeah, I know. I haven't, I haven't gone onto it because I just, I, I don't have enough time, unfortunately. No. But I see my children on there watching all sorts of interesting mm-hmm. videos. Very fun. You obviously have a lot of history in England, Lucky Duck. So what's a favorite historic site that you like to visit? Maybe apart from Hever. We all love Hever, but maybe another one. <laughs> Hever aside, um, I'd probably say the Tower of London is one that always gets me. I just think it's it's just the most emotive kind of site um, that you can go to. And, and it's it's just very, yeah, every time you go, I feel like you can get something different from it and and just kind of have a moment to reflect on everything that's happened there. It's it's an amazing place. So true. I every time I'm in London, I go back. It just I think I've been like six times now. And people say, "Why well, you go back to the same spot?" But as you say, you do find something new. There's a different appreciation, or if you know you've been researching a certain character, and so different connections, emotional connections that you can make. So I love it. And obviously, you've spent just such a long time researching and writing your thesis. So do you have any writing rituals that you like to follow? I mean, I love a to-do list. I'm very, I like to make, first thing I'll do is make a to-do list. And then I'll usually add something on there that I've already done. So then I can <laughs> being productive. Um, so yes, probably have to-do list and lots of diagrams and things stuck up on my wall. I've still got to my left, I've still got all sorts of um, timetables and diagrams on my wall from when I was writing my thesis. And then, uh, yeah, strong cup of coffee and maybe some essential oils as well. I've been diffusing some essential oils recently to try and set the vibes for writing. And um, that's been nice to try and keep calm amongst all the the stress. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How do you, talking about a bit of stress, obviously it's hard work (laughs) doing this, this sort of stuff. So what do you do to recharge the batteries and relax a little bit? I would say probably my favorite thing to do is to have a nice long hot bath um, and have a lovely bath bomb and maybe do a face mask and kind of light some candles and have a little self-care evening and then more cuddles with my dog. Absolutely. That always (laughs) something that relaxes me. (laughs) What kind of dog do you have? I have a little, she's a Shih Tzu Poodle cross. So she's basically just a ball of fluff. Um, So she's, she's very cute to snuggle. And lucky last, if you could travel back to one event in the 16th century, which would you like to see? Maybe relevant to what we've been talking about today, I would love to see the moment that Anne passed the book to Elizabeth Hill or bequeathed it to her, see exactly what kind of happened in that moment uh, to sort of witness that connection firsthand, I think would be wonderful. Yeah, that's so true. I would, I, I'm joining you on that moment. I'm coming along as well. I want to see that too. <laughs> now, Kate, the very last thing I promise is the last thing is the Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests for something that we call a Tudor takeaway, which is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people have website suggestions or books or songs to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. I actually have two, if that's all yes, right. Yes, we love that. The first would be actually to check out the digitized manuscripts section of the British Library's website. I don't know if that's been mentioned before, but it's the most wonderful, accessible, free 
resource um, and you're literally able to flick through pages on pages of a huge variety of different manuscripts and a couple of them I've mentioned earlier the Bedford Hours and the Beaufort Hours I specifically recommend the Beaufort Hours to have a look at um, Margaret Beaufort's personal recipes and weird breast milk in the ear concoctions <laughs> but it's it's a beautiful resource yeah to be able to flick through online and then the other is a sort of online library um, it's got many amazing resources uh, linked on it and it's it was actually created by my university department during the first lockdown of last year um, and it's called MEMSLIB, M-E-M-S Lib, and it makes research for all things medieval and early modern, not just Tudor, uh, very digitally accessible. It's definitely worth a browse if you're looking for some help or some inspiration. That's wonderful because obviously we have people from all over the world that tune in to Talking Tudors and, and that love to do their own research, of course. So that's a that's a really helpful one. And I'll add links to those as well. Um, I love looking through those manuscripts on that website because some of the illustrations are quite a little bit kooky too. So it's, you never know what you're going to find on there. There's a lot of gems, hidden gems, I think. So Absolutely. Is, but be warned, you can lose yourself for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Like TikTok. <laughs> like TikTok, exactly. Well, Kate, it's so it was so wonderful to hear about your research and those incredible discoveries. And I look forward to following the journey and seeing where this takes you and what comes from it. And thank you so much for sharing it with us here on Talking Tudors. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.